I'm going to start off uh, by reading a word that's very familiar to most of us. I'm going to be reading John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from him his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let us pray. Father, we pray that as your word is preached this morning, that it would go forth with power, Lord. Whether there is anyone here in our attendance physically, or even anyone listening online that does not know Jesus, that does not believe that he is the Son of God, may you use this message today, Lord, to bring them to faith. And Lord, as we've talked about throughout the service thus far, we pray that as we hear this message, those who are your saints, that we would be filled with great joy. That in the midst of this chaos uh, that we call 2020, that we would be able to look beyond and see your son. And in that, be filled with great joy. We ask and pray all these things through Christ our Lord. Amen and amen. So I'm going to open up my water bottle here. I'm going to start a little differently than I normally do. Um, so I'm at work the other day. And just to give you guys a little flavor of what I do, I am not someone, and I see this is an audience that will understand what I'm about to say, I'm not someone who works the beat. So if you're in the military, um, I'm what you would call chairborn. I'm essentially in an office from 8 in the morning to 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And obviously in this season, um, that's pretty much me leaving for work and it's dark and me coming home and it's still dark. <laughs> so another little side, I have no windows in my office. I have multiple offices. One is on the side. I, I run Central Records. So obviously we can't have windows because you don't want somebody breaking into records and stealing their record. 
but I also am the property evidence officer, so you don't want somebody breaking in there as well and stealing stuff as well. So I have no window. So typically what is going on outside on a given day, I have no clue unless one of my staff tells me or I happen to go outside. So for two days this week, I happen to go outside. And the reason why is Tara motivated me to clean our basement and I had some old police paperwork downstairs that I was gonna shred at home, but I'm like, this is their stuff, so I'm gonna shred it at work, since it's theirs. So I brought it over, I go out to get it, and as I leave my office and finally see outside about nine o'clock in the morning, it's snowing. That was Tuesday, I believe, and then I had to take something out of my car again on Wednesday because somebody needed to use the van because we were doing a toy drive and some other things and I go outside to clean out my vehicle that day as well, and it's snowing again. Now, here's the irony. On Tuesday, when I went outside for some reason, a certain song came to my mind. Now, what, what song do you think that is? Not Let It Snow, but it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. For some reason, that was the song that came to the forefront of my mind. Now, I don't know why that particular song was the first thing that came to my mind, but as I reflect, I'm wondering if it has anything to do with the fact that it's 2020 and we are still in the midst of this pandemic and I'm just looking for some type of normal, probably just like everyone else here today. Because it's not like we don't have other visible signs right now that there's Christmas. Right? We just sang some beautiful songs. We have a beautiful display behind us that we thanked all those who partook in that the other day for, for taking part in. Um, typically, there's Christmas music playing in my office. In fact, uh, one of my coworkers has been probably playing Christmas music since before Thanksgiving. And I know if we would let her, she would play it all year long. Unfortunately for her, the other staff do not allow her to do that. But still, normalcy, rather, is lacking um, because most of my staff, they're on amended schedules, so they could still get their work done but maintain social distancing. Um, so typically, I'm the only one that's physically in the office from 8 to 4. Now, it's not like here on Sunday, I don't have decorations all around me as well, right, to remind me of the Christmas season. Uh, but normalcy is also lacking here, right? as we've been relegated to keeping our numbers to around 80 every Sunday. And once the service concludes, we have to immediately leave and go outside and still maintain social distancing and try to keep safe as much as we can. So it's not like we can just sit in here and take it all in as a body of believers. So with that said, I think all of that just brought back a little bit of normalcy for me that, hey, it's winter time, it's Christmas time, and look, it's snowing. Now I can go on and on how the season is different, but all of you are going through this just like I am. And my purpose today is not to depress you, but to give you a message of hope. And as I think of that, it just reminds me of how careful we as Christians must be because we can have the tendency to put created things before the creator and lose sight of the very thing that we should be focusing on. You see, these visible reminders of the season 
are great, but they are just reminders and not the reason that we are celebrating the season. Now, I know to aid us in remembering this, we typically have helpful slogans like Jesus is the reason for the season. But even as we think of it on this season, we have to be careful to not take a deep theological concept like the incarnation and assign it to only this time of year. I was reading a quote from Pastor Tim Chester that Tim Chalice had posted on Instagram, and it said the following, Jesus is for life, not just for Christmas. He's not just the reason for the season, he's the meaning of everything. He's not just the point of Christmas, he's the purpose of life. And that's the beauty of this first chapter in John's gospel. John is reminding us that Jesus is for life, he's the purpose of life, and in him is life. That's what John is doing in this first chapter. Now, if you remember about a year or so ago, and if you do remember this, I'm pretty impressed, I preached on this very text, and we covered the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, and how John the Baptist and his ministry bore witness to the light that is Jesus. Today, we're going to again cover both the deity and humanity of Christ, but this time the emphasis is going to be on the incarnation. Our main point for today is that Jesus is God, and it was God who took on flesh and dwelt among his people, and this divine presence gives followers of Jesus hope as we make our way through a dark and storm-ridden world. Now, John begins his gospel with the words, In the beginning was the Word, or the Lagos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. As John noted two weeks ago, and when I say that John, I'm talking about Pastor John in the back, because we're going to be going over three Johns, so I know this can get confusing. So as John noted two weeks ago, the phrase, in the beginning, takes us back to Genesis 1-1, where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This logos, or word that John is speaking of, was there in the beginning with God. But not only was he there in the beginning with God, John adds that the logos was God. The logos was in the beginning, which if he existed in the beginning, it means that he is eternal, meaning he is without beginning and without end, which is an attribute that is unique only to God. What was this logos doing in the beginning with God. He was actively participating in the creation of the heavens and the earth. It says in verse 3 that all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And again, there's that allusion back to the first two chapters of Genesis. So not only is the word eternal, but he actively participated in the work of creation. In fact, in verse 4, John tells us that he, the word, is the source of life. So there is no life without this word that John is telling us about. It says, in him was life, which again is an attribute that is only unique to God. So from the start, there are some things that need to be highlighted here. Specifically what John isn't saying, and more specifically what John is saying. So as we look at this text, what isn't John saying? So just to give you a quick primer on this, 
John is not stating here that there are two gods. So we need to be very careful as we start to look at this text that John is not telling us that there's the word and there's also another God. And I'm going to get a little ahead of myself here to simplify things in order that as I explain theology proper here, we do not get confused. So up to this point, John has not revealed to his readers who this Lagos is. As we fast forward to verses 6 and 8, where John introduces John the Baptist, John the author in explaining John the Baptist makes sure that his readers do not get confused and identify the Baptist, Baptist rather, as the Lagos. In verses 4 and 5, John identified the Lagos as the light of men and the light that shines in the darkness, so much so that the darkness has not overcome it. But in verses in 7 and 8, John tells us that John the Baptist came to bear witness about the light, but he himself was not the light. So he's making it perfectly clear that John the Baptist is not the light. So who then is this Lagos and light? Well, to do that, we have to go to verse 14. And as we look at verse 14 and the word becoming flesh, we see that it's none other than the person of Jesus. That, who, that is who John is referring to in these first few verses. He is the one who was in the beginning. Jesus is the one who was with God. He is the one who is God. Now, as John notes these facts, he is not embracing polytheism, but he is stating clearly that Jesus is God and God the Father is God. He is also stating that Jesus is not the Father and the Father is not Jesus. Note again verse 1. It says the word was with God. The use of the Greek preposition pros, which means with, indicates that the word is distinct from the Father. In fact, as several commentators note, the same preposition shows that there is an intimate personal relationship between the word and the Father. The next clause, and the word was God, further expands on the fact that the Father and Jesus are distinct. This clause notes that the word was God, not God was the word. Again, to note the distinction between the Father and the Son, but to also show us that Jesus is fully God. And this is a theme that will continue throughout the book of John. Jesus' deity is something that as you look through the book of John, you will continually see. John 10.30, Jesus says, the Father and I are one. John 17, 11, Jesus, when praying for his disciples, says, so that they may be one, just as we are one. John 8, 58, before Abraham came into existence, I am. A clear reference to Exodus 3, where Moses asks God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. In John 8.58, there is no refuting that Jesus claims to be God. Because immediately after saying this, the Jewish people are ready to stone him. 
So we must understand that as we look at this text, John off the bat is telling us that Jesus is God. But he's also telling us that Jesus is not the Father. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity who is distinct from the Father. And just to keep us in continuity and going with the Trinity, if we're going to hold that the Father and the Son are distinct, yet both are fully God, we're going to take it a step further and also assert that the Holy Spirit is a distinct person within the Godhead and fully God as well. We affirm as a church, according to the New City Catechism, which holds to the confessions from the Reformation, that there are three persons in the one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Now, substance means that all the divine attributes are identically common to each of the three persons who subsist in common of the one essence. So there are no attributes that the Father has that the Son and Spirit do not have, and so on and so forth. For the sake of time, I think you understand, I'm going to say there's none that Jesus has, that neither the Father and the Spirit has, and so on and so forth. So in closing this section, I think it's important to note that this doctrine totally dismisses a heresy such as modalism, the belief that God is one person who appears to us in three different modes or forms. So there are some who believe that as we look at the Old Testament, that is the revelation of God the Father. Then as we now move forward to the Gospels, it's God manifesting himself as Jesus. And then after the Gospels, after Acts 2, after Jesus ascends into heaven, now we have the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. That is incorrect. And that is incorrect because there are three persons in the one Godhead, not one person manifesting himself in three different ways. So it is God in three persons, as we sing, blessed Trinity. So John teaches us in this passage that Jesus is fully God. In verses 1 and 2, he tells us that he was in the beginning. In verse 1, he also tells us that he was with God. Also in verse 1, he says he was God. He tells us in verse 3 that all things were made through him. In verse 4, he tells us that in him was life. And then as we move forward, in verse 14, we'll say that he, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, which glory can only be an attribute that's gone, given to God, rather. And lastly, in verse 18, we'll see that he, as God, reveals God. And we're going to get to that in a little bit. But John not only teaches us that Jesus is fully God, moving forward and now to the point of what we're going to be covering today, John also teaches us that Jesus is fully man. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh involves the incarnation of the word, which simply means that the word took to himself a human nature. With respect to Jesus's human nature, it's important to note a few things. Now, all of these points have been derived from Hendrickson, Hendrickson's rather New Testament commentary on John. I just like to give credit to people when I steal their material. It's just the right thing to do. So first, 
the word becomes flesh is not in a sense where the word ceases to be what it was before. So the word becomes flesh and remains the word, even God. So as Jesus becomes flesh, none of his divinity diminishes. He still remains fully God. So as Jesus takes on this human nature, it's not like he becomes 50-50. So now he's 50% God and 50% man. As he takes on this human nature, he is still 100% God and he is 100% man. So none of his attributes diminish. Second, Jesus assumes the human nature without laying aside the divine, as was just noted, and the divine and human nature of Christ become fully united without being fused. And all that is is fancy terminology, again, to say that he's 100% God, 100% man. Third, the Greek word used for flesh here has reference to a human nature considered not sinful, yet subject to weariness, pain, misery, and death. So although Christ has a human nature, he did not have a sinful nature. This is important to note because if Christ had a sinful nature, he could not qualify as our substitute. So we have to understand that in order for Jesus to be our substitute, he had to be the perfect spotless lamb. He had to be without sin because if a sinner could go before God and qualify as our substitute, that means one of us would be able to do that as well. So Jesus had to be sinless. Now, the fact that Jesus became flesh is not an abstract thought, but something that John witnessed in the flesh. John tells us that Jesus tabernacled or dwelled among us, and we have seen or beheld his glory. Hendrickson notes concerning John and other eyewitnesses beholding Jesus' glory that the verb for beheld indicates careful and deliberate vision which seeks to interpret its object. It refers to physical sight, but goes beyond to include calm scrutiny, contemplation, or even wonderment. An individual regards an object and reflects on it, scans and examines it with care, studies, views, and considers it thoughtfully. With all that said, God in the flesh was not a figment of the apostle's imagination or an optical illusion or a fantasy. And we kind of see that when Jesus walks on water. Right here they are, they think they're dreaming, they call out to him, and Jesus says, it is I. So there's no optical illusion going on here. They understand that it is Jesus in the flesh. The word Jesus was fully man, and John makes this more and more evident throughout his gospel. Jesus had a true body. He felt physical pain and had physical needs. We see this in John 4, 6, and 7. It says Jesus was wearied from his journey and needed a drink. So just as we get tired, just like I need a drink right now that I'm about to partake in, same thing with Jesus. Jesus and his physical body got tired and thirsted. John 19, 28 says he thirsted. Jesus also, and this is something that makes man man. So not only is man something that's physical, but man also has a reasonable soul. Jesus had a reasonable soul, and we see that as he shows emotion. We see in John 11.35 that Jesus wept. We see in 11.33 and 12.27 and 13.21, especially as he starts these Jerusalem journeys, that his soul was greatly troubled. 
In 2027, it says after his death, Thomas was told to not touch his hands and his side that he might believe. So again, Thomas is touching something that's tangible, something that is physical. So Jesus is fully man. So after looking at these verses, we affirm that Jesus is fully God and fully man. I'm going to read from something that sums it up a lot better than I would. I'm going to be reading from the Westminster Confession, chapter 8, part 2, which iterates the church's belief concerning Jesus. It says, the Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God, of one substance and equal with the Father, did when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common affirmities thereof, yet without sin. Being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, so that two whole, perfect and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. So Jesus is fully God and fully man. So now that we've established that, what does all this mean? And here's where I want to spend the remainder of our time. I didn't want to hit you with too much theology and put you to sleep. That's stuff like John and I, the nerds here, like to typically read. So as we look at Jesus being fully God and fully man, what does this mean, or better yet, what does this mean for the Christian? Well, first, because of this, Jesus' people are reconciled to God. Jesus being fully God and fully man is the only one that can reconcile us to God. Because of sin, all of us are enemies of God. Romans 3.23 reminds us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin causes us to walk in darkness, and the only way to overcome the darkness is to turn to the light. When we believe in Jesus and receive him, we are no longer enemies of God, but we become children of God. We are no longer in the darkness, but we've been enlightened by the true light. Ephesians 5.8 tells us, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 5, For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. For those who have yet to receive Jesus, I implore you to consider John's purpose of this book. In chapter 20, verse 31, John tells us that he has written these things, that you might be, come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So we talked about how Jesus is life. If you want life, you must turn to the one that is life. So if you do not know Jesus, that's my encouragement to you today, that you would turn to the one who gives life. Now, I just talked about him reconciling us to himself, but here's the beauty and John covered Genesis 1 and 2 in the beginning. And we have to admit that as we deal with COVID and other things that we have been dealing with in these last several months, that we not only see corruption within ourselves and sin, but we see corruption in the whole world. You know, COVID is a result of a sin-cursed 
world. But here's the comfort. Jesus is not only reconciling us to God, he is reconciling his whole creation. So we as the people of God have a day to look forward to when there is a new heaven and a new earth, when there is no more sickness. I know many of you are saying I'd rather take right now no more COVID, but when there's no more sickness, no more weeping, there's going to be a day when all of this is restored to what it was in the garden. And that should give us great hope. That is a great hope that we have, that even as we deal with what we deal with right now, there is going to be a time where all this has gone away and we will be fully in the presence of our God. And that's great news. That is great, great news. Second, since Jesus dwelled with us, we can know God. Just think about that. We can know God because Jesus has dwelled with us. Verse 18 says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus is the one who makes God known. In Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27, Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Bible scholar Michael D. Williams says the following, making God known is the particular business of Jesus. Making the coming God of Old Testament promise the present God, showing us up close and personal in the flesh, the character and ways of the creator. In Jesus of Nazareth, God is brought near, made close, personal, available to his people. In the incarnation, God enters a young girl's womb and comes into our world to begin the long and blood-covered path to restore and regenerate, to reclaim again all creation, and to fulfill the covenant promise, I will be your God and you will be my people. Now in our own strength, we can study the things of God until we're blue in the face, but despite all of this studying, we cannot know God unless Jesus reveals him to us. Jesus must reveal God to us for us to know God. Third, since Jesus dwelled among us, he shows us what man should be like. So he shows us God, he makes God known, but he also shows us what man should be. Jesus, since he is fully man, is, and I I like this term better, not only the second Adam, but the true Adam. Jesus exemplifies what man should be. I'm going to be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 42 through 49. It says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised the spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. 
As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That's one of the purposes of the incarnation that we might bear the image of Jesus Christ. And in fact, as we look at it, and I love simplifying definitions like this, that is what sanctification is. Sanctification is the believer becoming more and more like Jesus. That is the whole crux of sanctification, not becoming better at praying, although these might be fruits, not reading your Bible more, but looking more and more like Jesus. And as John noted earlier, when we do things like food drives, when we do things like we did with uh, Operation Christmas Child and all these other events that we take in, when we become the hands and feet, that's when more and more we're taking on the image of Christ. That is when. When we're loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength as we see Jesus do throughout the Gospels, and when we're loving man as ourself, that is when we are becoming more and more like Jesus. In Colossians 3, which for the sake of time I'm not going to read, we're told to put on the new self, which is the character of Christ. Now, I said I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I am going to read for you verses 12 through 17, which again shows us our sanctification process and becoming more and more like Jesus. It says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymn and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. So Jesus dwelling among us shows us what we should be like. So with that said, and I know as Christians we have a tendency to do that, you know, we were talking about some of the commentaries that I would typically use before this service. My job is not to become like Louis Burkhoff. My job is not to become like A.A. Hodge. Someone I quoted here earlier, my job is to not become like Michael D. Williams. Although John is the pastor, my job is not to become like John. Although Paul calls us to imitate him, my job is not to become like Paul because Paul would say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So Christ is the end state. He is the God-man. He is the perfect one, and he is the standard to which I am to hold myself to. Now, that's not to diminish godly people that have gone before us. But my hope is those godly people that we sometimes seek to emulate, we're emulating the fact that they were trying to be like Jesus, 
not like someone else. So the call is to be like Christ. Fourth, since Jesus dwelled among us, we are reminded that God's desire is to dwell with his people. I'm going to read that one again because that to me is this great news. Fourth, since Jesus dwelled among us, we are reminded that God's desire is to dwell with his people. And John showed us this over the last two weeks by covering God's relationship with Adam in the garden and then his relationship with Jacob in Bethel. This theme of God wanting to dwell with his people is woven throughout the Old Testament as we witness the institution of the tabernacle as the people of Israel leave Egypt, travel in the wilderness for 40 years and enter the promised land, and then through the reign of Solomon when we see the establishment of the temple. So we see all along that God's heart was to dwell with his people. Now here's the beautiful thing. This theme of God wanting to tabernacle or dwell with his people is fully realized in the person of Jesus. That is where it is fully realized. So much so that Jesus, when speaking on the Sabbath in Matthew 12, 6 to the Pharisees, tells them in reference to himself that something greater than the temple is here. Jesus is greater than the temple. In fact, he is the true temple. Now, John and I were conversating about this throughout the week, and I'm like, you know, we cover some heavy concepts when we talk about the Christian life. I, I just went over the full deity of Christ rather quickly in his full humanity. But, but just think on this, and I'm telling John, I'm like, you know, he's the true God. He's the true man. He's the true temple. He's the true Israel. I think I had something else in there, but we sing these songs sometimes yet fail to realize that all fulfillment of all things is in Christ. And that's heavy. I mean, that's something that, again, we shouldn't just meditate upon during this Christmas season. But as Pastor Tim Challies reminded us through that post through uh, Tim Chester, this is something that we should meditate upon Daily. If Jesus is life, this is something that we should be meditating on on a daily basis. Lastly, Jesus' incarnation shows us that God's promises are true. Now, I could have went on and on. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to do was stick to the text. But even as John notes, at the end of this book here, that if we were to put all that Jesus said and did, we wouldn't have enough paper pretty much to do so. I would not have enough time, and I'm pretty much over time as it is, to cover all the works that Jesus has done. So I tried to stick to these things that were, for the most part, within the text. So I'm going to read that again. Lastly, Jesus' incarnation shows us that God's promises are true. So when we read Isaiah 7:14 every year during this time, that should remind us that God's promises are true. And just in case you're not familiar with Isaiah 7, 14, once I read it, it's going to become a very familiar passage to you. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This promise is fulfilled in Jesus. In times such as these, it is always important to remember 
the promises of God. The God who desires and promised to dwell with you says through Moses in Deuteronomy 31.6 and also in verse 8 and through the author of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews 13.5 that he will never leave you or forsake you. And as we even think on those words, I will never leave you or forsake you, should remind us of his desire to dwell with us. Again, he wants to dwell with you so much that he promises you that he will never leave you nor forsake you. In a time such as these, these are important words to remember. Saints, as we continue to endure COVID, my prayer is that you will remember that God desires to dwell with you and that he will never leave you nor forsake you. And because God's promises are true, you can be assured that in this season, you are not alone. God is with you. Little side note, someone here, I'm not going to say their name, but they'll wave their hand maybe. We were talking about Michael Card the other day via email. Hi, Lisa. (laughs) And one of the things I told her, Tara and I had the opportunity to hear Michael Card speak, and he was going through the Lament Psalms, which if you guys remember, we did a little while back as well. And he was talking about the presence of God and how in times when we're going through different circumstances, we don't realize or feel the presence of God. And the one thing that he noted that stuck out to me was when we don't feel the presence of God, it's not God. It's us. God is there. It's us allowing our circumstance or our sin or whatever the case may be stopping us from realizing that God is there. That's what the problem is. So the problem isn't God. The one who says, I will never leave you or forsake you, he's here. He's in your presence. As you're enduring COVID, he is here with you. And my hope is that each one of us realizes that. And if we don't, it's not because God isn't there. It's us. Maybe we need to stop and pause and meditate on the promises of God and remember that he's here. He's here. Now, as I thought of that concept, a certain song that we sing every now and then here at church came to my mind. I am, I am not alone. You know, we as a congregation will sing this song together, and hopefully that's something that helps us to remember that as we endure, we're not by ourselves. Or... When we recite, like many saints now and in the past, a a famous psalm like Psalm 23, verse 4, that says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Hopefully remember that, yes, God is with us as we endure these things. Jesus says in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Saints, may we find great comfort in these words as the one who dwelled among us promises to give us rest when we are weary and heavy laden. And I know in this time, a lot of us are weary and heavy laden. May you go to Jesus for rest. That is where you will find true joy and rest for your souls.
Now, if you remember from the beginning of the sermon, one of the points that I conveyed was that Jesus isn't only to be celebrated during this season, but he's to be celebrated every season. The incarnation is not only a theological concept that we highlight during this season, but it's a concept that we meditate upon every week as we partake in the body and blood of Jesus. Now, we don't believe that we are physically partaking in his body and blood, but the bread and the cup represent the crucified body and the shed blood of the Savior, which he gave for his people. So as I note that, ushers, if you can start coming forward. As we partake in this sacrament, God confirms that he is faithful and true to fulfill the promises of his covenant, and he calls us to deeper gratitude for our salvation, to renewed consecration, and to be more faithful in obedience. The supper is also a bond and a pledge of the communion that believers have with him and with each other as members of his body. As scripture says, for we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. The supper anticipates the consummation of the ages when Christ returns to gather all his redeemed people at the glorious wedding feast of the Lamb. As we come to the Lord's table, we humbly deny ourselves to crucify the sin that is within us, to resist the devil, and to follow Christ as becomes those who bear his name. Now this partaking is only for those who have put their faith in Jesus. If you have yet to do so, I warn you in the name of Christ to not partake. As we have done over the last several weeks, I'm going to give you a minute or so to meditate on what was just said and go before the Lord in repentance. <laughs>